Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus uh, Deep Space 9, the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher. Take a screenshot and email the screenshot and your question to us at b5bsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question live on the show. We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, please hit us up again at email at b5bsds9 at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Babylon 5 versus Deep Space Nine podcast, the greatest podcast about the two great 90s space station TV shows. This is Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing today, Matt? Doing pretty well. Ready to talk about riding motorcycles on space stations. Boo. <laughs> yeah, so we've got two episodes up today. We've got uh, Eyes, which is episode 15 of season one of Babylon 5 that originally aired on the 13th of July, 1994. And then we've got Profit and Loss, a, a episode 18 of season two of Deep Space Nine that originally aired on the 20th of March, 1994. Um, I guess I'll go ahead and kick us off with uh, the A plot of Eyes, which thankfully does not involve any Kawasaki ninjas or other motorcycles. And so we have uh, Colonel Ari Benzane of uh, Earth, for Earth Force Infernal uh, Earth Force Internal Affairs, not Infernal Affairs, which is a great Hong Kong movie that was remade into The Departed, but Internal Affairs. And uh, Earth Force Internal Affairs is also known as The Eyes. And so this uh, investigator from The Eyes, Colonel Benzane, and a Psychor liaison, one Harriman Gray, arrive at the behest of Psychop Alfred Bester on the station to investigate Sinclair and Ivanova, Ivanova. Benzane's efforts to force Sinclair and Ivanova to submit to a telepathic scan from Gray provoke a crisis of conscience for Ivanova, who refuses to allow another telepath to touch her mind in the way her mother Sophie had before she committed suicide. And then on the B plot, we've got Garibaldi. He's distracted by Benzane's investigation for his hobby of assembling a Kawasaki Ninja motorcycle from parts he has acquired over the last five years. Uh, so aboard Lanier assumes the project and actually builds it all in one episode. And so if I had to give a friend's uh, a friend's description of this, it is the one where Lanier builds a motorcycle. Shouldn't we call those uh, "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" descriptions? No, it, that's the it, it's the title of all the show, the Friends shows. Friends came before Sunny. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah, but always sunny is much better. 
you're, that's a whole different podcast, Bob. That's like <laughs> is we're that, not we're that, not, not going to do Friends versus Always Sunny. That's, uh, that's that, too that, much. That, too that, much. That's that's next season, folks. Get ready. A <laughs> hundred and seventy six episodes of DS Nine is already too much. Um, I, what what is it like? Three hundred episodes of Friends and Always Sunny, probably. I believe, I believe so. Yes, it's incredibly it's incredible. How so All right. So, what did you think of uh, Jeffrey Combs playing the telepath Harriman Gray in Eyes, Matt? He he's really like the Stan Lee of science fiction television shows. Like he just shows up like at all these different things. Uh, I felt like this wasn't probably one of his best roles, but it was it was like it was okay no, for, for, for the writing. For the writing, it was okay. Um, I kind of look forward to revisiting the episodes of DS9. Yeah, yeah, he plays uh, the Vorta administrator, Wayun in many different clone iterations on DS9. It's yeah. great. He also plays a, a minor Ferengi role on DS9 of Liquidator Brunt, and he's a, he's appeared in a lot of other Star Trek, too. He, um, he has a couple of roles on Star Trek Enterprise. Um, the most notable is uh, the Andorian Commander Shran, which is probably the uh, only great character from Star Trek Enterprise, which is uh, one of my, actually by far my least favorite Star Trek show. So another minor Star Trek appearance from Jeffrey Combs is that he's in a season six episode of Voyager that guest stars The Rock. Oh, The Rock. There's 90s TV for you right there, folks. The Rock. Not Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. <laughs> he rock bottom seven of nine, if I recall correctly. I probably didn't do the people's elbow, but there's still a chance in a Picard season two. <laughs> well, I had to suspend my disbelief for so many things in Picard season one that I think I can suspend my disbelief for the people's elbow in Picard season two. <laughs> so, uh, Jeffrey Coombs character, uh, gray, for those who are keeping up with this, which I, it's, it's my thing. I like to keep up with it is gray is actually a P 10 on the, uh, psychic scale. Italian winners is P5, Besser's P12, Jason Einhart was like way above P12 apparently. And then but he Lita, starts at P12. He starts at P12, and then Lita Alexander is P5. So if you're a Psychop, you're P12, Gray's a P10, so he's not a Psychop. Yeah, Gray never shows up in the show again, which is kind of strange given how important the telepaths uh, become in later seasons. But he does show up in the one Babylon 5 novel I've read, which is called Voices. And uh, in that novel, he's still nursing a heavy crush on Ivanova. It's a really not a good um, novel, though, so I would not recommend reading the <laughs> Babylon 5 novel voices. Yeah, I've been looking at some of the novels, and I'm, I'm not too sure how I feel about them. I don't know if they're at the same caliber as the Star Trek novel tie-ins, but uh, maybe there's some good ones in there somewhere. By and large, they don't seem to be, like, they seem, like, the one, I'm more, I tend to be more interested in, um, novels that are like further adventures of the crew and the Babylon five novels that are further adventures of the crew don't really seem to be that high quality as you know, I mean, there's a lot of bad Star Trek novels, but there's also some really good Star Trek novels that are like further adventures of, you know, the crew of Voyager, the crew of the enterprise. And then the other kind of form of a tie in novel is like huge backstory dumps which we're starting to see a lot with like the tie-in novels for Discovery and Picard because Discovery and Picard don't really have like status quos that you can do further adventures from. So they've, they've done a lot of prequel novels, which are, is my least favorite form of novel. And it does seem like there's some Babylon 5 novels that are prequel novels that uh, JMS considers canon and that people think are great. Um, but they mostly tend to be about subjects I don't give a damn about like the Minbari or the Technomages who you'll meet in season two. 
And so I, frankly, I just don't need to know any more about the Minbari and the Techno Mages. I, I've learned already far too much about them from the show. Oh, Techno Mages, more of the Arthurian legend uh, <coughs> shit. Okay. No. Is it Arthurian legend stuff or is it Tolkien stuff? I, I don't know. Eh, I don't know. Well, I guess I'll find out. I don't know. I, I just, every time I hear it, I think of Merlin. Yeah, yeah. It's really only like one episode if I but it for whatever reason just people people love Technet Mages. I don't get it. I think they're awful. I look forward to it, Bob. I look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I did want to ask, uh, what did you think about all the references to prior Babylon 5 episodes in this? Like we hear we hear about Midnight on the Firing Line and the Narns attacking the Centauri colony. We hear about Mind War and Jason Ironheart. We hear about war prayer and the hate crime against the famous Minbari poet. We uh, hear about Sky Full of Stars and the Knights investigating Sinclair in the VR simulation. We hear about the Death Walker. We hear about the assassination attempt on the president and survivors. And then we hear about the dock strike and by any means, any means necessary. If someone would like a very short attention span, I appreciated it because, right? It's not really a short attention span, but it's more like a, I guess a memory thing. Like, I can't, like, if unless I really watch it carefully multiple times, I'm not going to remember remember it that well. So them mm-hmm. going back constantly and like referring to things that happened in the past helps me out as the viewer. Because um, as I'm going through, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh yeah, yeah, I watched that. Okay, yeah, I watched that one too. Okay, I remember all those things happening. And I'm like, okay, now this makes sense why this guy's here because he's trying to like you know rake uh, Sinclair over the coals. But it, it's just. Yeah, I think I think it was a great I think it was great to kind of recap and kind of show what's happened. It's like cliff notes, basically. Yeah, and I mean, you can see why it would be really useful in the mid '90s when you know people maybe were taping these on VHS, but they didn't really have any other easy way to revisit prior episodes. Um, I don't know. I'm a I'm a little less patient with it than you are. That may just be because this is my third time through Babylon Five season one, (laughs) Um, so. I, and I'm also like, I appreciate that the show tries to stress consequences and it tries to be unlike the non Deep Space Nine Star Trek shows. It doesn't try to just set everything back to zero at the end of an episode. So there are ongoing consequences for like Sinclair's command decisions. But on the other hand, it's just like, you know, Sinclair can only be investigated so many times. Like, he gets investigated by the Knights. He gets investigated by the Psychor. He gets investigated by internal affairs. He gets uh, raked over the coals by that labor negotiator from Survivors. Um, he, he has Garibaldi investigate him. It's just like, I, you know, it's like, I get it. I get it. The man has a mysterious backstory. Like, I don't know. I'm a little less patient with it at this point. Oh, yeah, and I could see that. Like, if... If I've seen this several times before, like I would probably be the same way. I can I'm like that sometimes with uh we don't really see it as much in DS9. I think of a show where you really do have a lot of like them going back to, to at least it's not a clip show like Next Generation. Well, that's actually a kind of good transition because you wanted to talk about the drumhead, right? And I was reading in Memory Alpha, so the drumhead is this famous um famous courtroom episode of the Next Generation that people compare um this episode eyes to reading up on the drumhead apparently the original idea for the drumhead was they needed to do a low budget episode and so they wanted to do another clip show 
but the other next generation clip show from season two, uh, I think Shades of Grey is like so famously bad. It's one of like the worst next generation episodes ever that they didn't want to repeat that. So they came up with the drum head as an alternative way to do a, like a really cheap kind of revisit prior enterprise adventures. Well, back in the day on, you know, the AOL message boards way back in 1994, a lot of the people that were, uh, were typing away like us, I guess. They accused uh, the writer of basically plagiarizing the drumhead for this episode. So to display my devotion to the fans of this podcast, I actually watched the episode in its entirety, unlike Bob, who just read the wiki. And yeah, I, I rewatched it last night. Oh, you rewatched it? Oh. oh. Yeah, I told you I was going to if I had time, and I had time. Oh, excellent. Thank you for doing that, Bob. Make sure you give a, a shout-out thank you to Bob and, on our Twitter. All right? <laughs> uh and I, uh, I combed through every plot element in search of signs of the blatant plagiarism that they were referring to. And I'm going to give you a short summary of the episode. And I'm going to point out three similarities that I found. And I'm going to let you decide, not you, Bob, the listeners, if it's damning. Yeah, because it's a laughable accusation. Yeah, Bob Bob doesn't think it's, it, it, it's legit, but I, I kind of think, I don't know, I'm on the fence. All right, so but the summary is basically this. There's an explosion aboard the Enterprise, at least at this high-level investigation that's headed by uh, Admiral Nora Satie. She's a retired officer renowned for her skill at exposing conspiracies. Uh, Satie quickly determines that a visiting Klingon officer was attempting to smuggle diagrams off the ship, but the Klingon denies any involvement in the explosion. Satie refuses to give up on her investigation even after the explosion has proven to be an accident. She accuses Captain Picard of treason when he challenges her charges against an innocent crewman. Well, it's not is really it? an innocent crewman. That, well, that doesn't... Shut up. That doesn't sound. <laughs> and also, she doesn't. She doesn't discover. They don't. They they've already discovered that the Klingon was smuggling plans, right? Bob, I copied this straight from the wiki. Shh. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> the wiki. The wiki summaries are shit. You've done that before, and they're bad. <laughs> anyway, back to what I was talking about. You've got. Here's what I've come up with. And if you've not seen the Drumhead, it's it's okay. It's not great. It's not a great episode. But if you. Oh, I think it's a great episode. You think it? Well, Bob thinks it is. I thought it was me. Eh. So. Ivanova is actually represents Tarsus, who was the accused Romulan crewman we were referring to earlier. Picard's defense of this crewman who refuses to answer questions is very similar to the way Sinclair handles Ivanova's refusal to be scanned. Do you, do you admit that, Bob? Is that true? No, I, I, I totally disagree. See, I think you're reading it this way because you're convinced that Ivanova is a traitor. And so you're coloring the watching the drumhead with that with that fact when the, it's very different because the episode doesn't give us any reason to believe that Ivanova has something to hide, whereas Tarsis does have something to hide. Okay, so go back to the episode. Like, just go back to the Babylon Five episode. Ivanova doesn't want to be scanned because she's hiding something. I'm telling you that right now. No, she doesn't want to be scanned for perfectly reasonable points, which is the a the presumption of innocence, and B, well, I mean, it's kind of subpoint like a one uh there's nothing in her record that would indicate disloyalty and then b she doesn't want to be scanned because she has actually very special memories of uh, her mother touching her with her mind and she doesn't want to color that um there are other reasons she doesn't want to be scanned that are a spoiler to say yeah so see but i haven't seen that stuff so like I, I don't know bob from what i'm seeing though i'm telling you she doesn't want to be scanned she's almost too late to disarming that bomb in that other episode she starts talking about the boom, boom now, boom later in the, in the following episode. Do you think Ben Zane is a hero? I'm saying that Zane may be right. 
Maybe he's right. No, like the entire point of the episode <laughs> is that Benzane is a fascist. Like Garibaldi literally calls him a Nazi, which is like maybe a little problematic since, you know, Benzane is clearly an Israeli national. But like the entire point of the episode is that Benzane is a Nazi and that this is a groundless inquisition. I'm telling you that Benzane may have had something. Ivanova may be hiding something. That's why she didn't want to be scanned. She's planning on doing something crazy. I'm just throwing that out there. I think the I think the comparison to um, Ivanova would would I I don't know like I I just I don't, I don't buy the comparison to Tarsis I I think you're right that there are some interesting parallels um, like it's interesting that you see Riker and Troy as a sort of interrogation team very early in the episode and then later you see Admiral Satie and I forget the name of her Betazoid. Uh, uh, investigator, but you see them as a pair, like in the same way that you get Benzane and Gray as a pair in the Babylon Five right. episode. But I mean, that's that's my, that's, that's my number two similarity. That's my number two. I already gave you my number one. My number two is that Admiral Satie brings along a Betazoid to telepathically read the emotions of the people being interrogated. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Gray being brought in to assist Zane's interrogations. I mean, I just don't think that's. I mean, obviously, yes, that is similar, but it's also like a very like natural thing that like telepaths in a science fiction world would lead you to do in storytelling. If I'm not mistaken, how many times do they really go in the next generation to talk about uh, her telepathic abilities? Like how often do they, do they go uh, into quite, detail? A, quite often. Like Troy is always sensing something. I mean, usually it's fairly obvious and fairly useless. But are there but any more, are, are, there, are there any more telepaths we, we, we come into contact with? Specifically yeah, on her mother, and I think there's several other Betazoids at various points in the show. Who on Deep Space Nine, other than other than her mother, who doesn't even use that power, honestly. We're not talking about Deep Space Nine, though. We're talking about, like, <laughs> Next Generation. It's and the same about, universe. Like, it's... it's the same universe. Obviously, on Babylon 5, these people have a big presence, okay? Deep Space Nine, uh, Star Trek, they don't. Well, yeah, it's, it, is, it is an interesting difference in, like, how... Star Trek tends to use the telepaths as very sort of like in a very limited way. And in Star Trek, like telepaths is a trait of certain species like uh, the Betazoids and uh, the Vulcans to a certain, you know, to a certain extent, although their telepathy is more limited. Whereas uh, you'll, you'll find this. Uh, well, actually, I think you already know this from Babylon 5 that most races in Babylon 5 have telepaths. And also we see that like whereas telepathy is pretty informal in the Star Trek universe and not well integrated into the structure of the world. In Babylon 5, it is very formalized. You have the Psychor who like pretty ruthlessly control the telepaths and kind of ruthlessly set boundaries on them about like what they can and can't do, how they dress so they're easily identifiable, that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a really interesting uh, distinction. I mean, Honestly, like in some ways, the Babylon Five version is probably better thought out and a you know probably a bit more quote realistic. So what you're saying is they copied it from Star Trek: The Next Generation and ran with it. I uh, know because telepathy wasn't in <laughs> by the Next Generation. Yeah, I know. Okay, <laughs> number three, Admiral C.T. interrogates Picard with several examples of potential treason from the Enterprise's previous missions. This ends with Sati going off the deep end and her true fanaticism and paranoia coming to forefront. Does that sound familiar? 
No, because Satie and Ben Zane are very different characters. Satie is clearly an admirable person who's let her uh, who's let her zealousness lead her into dark places, whereas Ben Zane is clearly just a guy who feels wronged and passed over and is conspiring with Bester to to screw Sinclair. Like, even though like the, yeah, they sort of have the mo both have the moment where they overplay their hand. I think it's very important that the plot of the drumhead is not about Satie coming to the Enterprise to screw Picard. It's about her coming to investigate something that was reported as possible sabotage and then it's spiraling out of control where Ben Zane is, you know, here to check the loyalty of Sinclair and Ivanova, you know, and then, all else and, then it, and then it spirals out of control, correct? No, it doesn't spiral out of control because Ben Zane always wanted to take Sinclair out. That's why he and Bester uh, conspired to bring him there. Like, this is something you find out in the finale, but no, no, Satie no. is the Satie is the person who assigned Picard command of the flagship. Like, she doesn't start the episode off like an evil villain determined to like screw Picard at all cost. I think that's just your impression of. No, that's not my impression. That's like what that's the essential message of the episode in in Picard's very uh, pretentious speech to Worf at the end of the episode. We'll just we'll just agree to disagree, Bob. Because <laughs> uh, I know that's uh, the way. <laughs> I, I generally I think the reason this annoys me is that people in fan communities really like to say plagiarism far too often and with like far little grounding. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I did go through the episode. Like I said, we'll let the we'll let the listeners decide. You know, hit us up on Twitter. Tell us what you think. We'll put a poll out there at some point when this episode drops. This this would be a good poll. Um, it, it'll it'll be a measure of my respect for the listeners. Do they think eyes is a, is a plagiarism of the drumhead? If so, frankly, I've lost some respect for the listeners. I have to say. And that's when our following dropped. <laughs> yeah, it's that. Uh, that's what I'm here to do is to alienate all the followers. Uh, one, one point I did want to ask that uh, not related to our bickering. So I was uh, house sitting last night and I watched The Next Generation on somebody's um, Netflix account. So I'm not sure if this is just how like the sound system they had set up or like how Netflix sets up the audio tracks. But did the background noise of the Enterprise D seem like overwhelming to you when you watch the drumhead? <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think they went they went all out for it in that particular episode. Yeah, we're like are all next gen episodes like that? Like it's been a few years since I've watched it. I mean, if they've been if they've been redone in uh, HD or whatever, probably just depends on. I guess it depends on the setup too of your friend if they have it and if they have it set up like they have a stereo surround sound. I, I don't think so, but like, I do. They have speakers behind your. They have speakers like behind your head. Not that I noticed. Oh, okay, I don't know. It could be. That's 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 just one thing with both. Honestly, with both these shows, like when you watch them now on HD, I don't think it sounded like that when we watched it when we were younger. <laughs> I think it was a little more tinny. Like, yeah, I mean, I I'm gonna I'm gonna pay a little more attention to Babylon Five and Deep Space Nine now, but just with like the fairly limited TV setup I have at home, and I, and I haven't I haven't really noticed the background noise being that powerful. But maybe it's also just the difference between like the ambient noise they would do on a space station show is probably a lot less than the ambient noise you would do on a starship show. One of the biggest issues is that my phone has the, uh, when it, someone texts me, it does the sound from the Star Trek door being opened. 
Oh, so you're just totally, uh, totally used to that noise. Yeah, and it throws me off when I hear it on the show because I check my phone. The, the dog thing. <laughs> the dog salivating. <laughs> oh, I I should know, but I can't remember. Pavlov. Pavlov. Pav- Pavlov. Pavlov, Pavlov. Yeah. yeah, it's totally Pavlov. I'm like checking my phone during the whole episode like, wait, there's nobody texting me. Oh, it's the, every time yeah, the door. Not, not, not to be confused with Alfred Bester or Walter Killing. All right. Did you did you have any thoughts on the ninja before we uh, transition over to Deep Space Nine? Yeah, like it was really funny. Uh, I was reading some notes about about this, and they did, there was no actual product placement for that motorcycle. So they could have made a ton of money because they put the I mean they put the whole thing right there. Like this is like the motorcycle in space, you know, nothing didn't didn't get a cent from it. They just it was just free product placement, honestly. Yeah, I feel like someone should have profited from that scene because I certainly didn't. Yeah, and after like looking at the station map and the RPG books and stuff, um, it is it is actually believable that Garibaldi could like ride that thing around somewhere. There's like whole parks and stuff on the station that I guess you never see due to budget constraints, but it's way bigger than what you see on TV. <laughs> more, just more evidence of Garibaldi, you know, the out of control employee. Uh, exploiting his friendship with Sinclair and making appropriate comments to all the women on the station and <laughs> recklessly ride a motorcycle yeah. around the station. Apparently electric, an electric motorcycle show up after 2035 too. That's the, when the last gasoline motorcycle was built. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, given what we now know about climate change seems a uh, very apocalyptic and dystopian, but not unrealistic. One thing I missed on the first watch, I don't know if I was not paying attention or what, but uh, that, uh, Lanier actually puts a, uh, Membari power source in the motorcycle. Yeah, so it's the source of those awful visual effects yeah. <laughs> in the final shot of the episode of like, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but there's just some really bad visual effects in that Yeah, it's some, some kind of like crystal thing he puts underneath the seat. It, it was like reminiscent of like some Power Ranger shit or something like that. Yeah, I think it, I, I mean, I, I don't remember what a Kawasaki Ninja sounds like, but I think the I, I assume the motorcycle probably sounds a little different than what the actual one sounds like because yeah. of the quote Minbari technology. Yeah. But yeah, so that that was it for that. I, I don't really have anything else about this episode. Oh well, I'll take that back. One more thing. This is the first time that Free Mars is actually mentioned. Uh, there's an unrest on Mars and the separatists are arming themselves. It is the first time they've mentioned the Mars separatist. Yes. There's like unrest on okay. Mars and they're like arming themselves and carrying all kinds of of terroristic attacks or something so apparently things aren't yeah because they've mentioned the mars colony a few times but i i guess they haven't mentioned the separatist part before. yeah this is this is the new thing and the only reason i'm even asking about this is i you know i do catch memes about free mars and i don't know what that has anything to do oh with yeah yeah Mar- mars will be pretty important going forward okay i'll just keep that in mind all right so you want to move on to ds9 yeah so we got a uh, profit profit and loss season two episode 18 did you want to walk us through the uh, a plot matt yeah, uh, Cork is reunited with Natima Long, Lang, excuse me, Natima Lang, his lost love, the former Cardassian journalist, and now she's a professor of political ethics, traveling with her two students, Rekelin and Hogue, who are major figures in the underground attempting to end military, government, and the Cardassian Union. Yeah, and then in the B-plot, we have the episode clarifying that Garrick, despite his exile, does seem to be working as an active spy for the Cardassian Union on DS9. Um, and something that, as I recall, was a bit more opaque in the two prior Garrick episodes, Past Prologue and Cardassians. 
And specifically at the beginning of the episode, we see Garrick and Bashir discussing what seems to be a literary character who uh, reveals his brother's treachery against the Cardassian Union, and Bashir and Garrick are debating that decision. Um, this discussion the two are having foreshadows their discussion of the greatest Cardassian novel, The Never-Ending Sacrifice, which is in a later Season 2 episode, so we'll be to that soon. So if we had to break this down, this is the one where Quark gets shot by an ex-Cardassian lover. <laughs> or the one where Quark does Casablanca. Yeah, that's true, too. So the reason I said that is because Natima is actually the person who shot J.R. Uh, that's Mary Crosby the actress she's a the daughter of bing crosby and the aunt of denise crosby oh that's wild i didn't know that i, I just recently listened to a very good podcast episode about dallas which was a, a show i had not thought about in years so it was an <laughs> interesting connection to come up it's interesting then uh one thing that i want to say about this episode is that garrick he said to this an exile he's said to be an exile of cardassia but we aren't really told, at least I didn't catch on to what extent it was more of a self-exile or if he was forced into exile by the Cardassians. And this kind of fits in with, this just kind of fits in with some of what we've talked about earlier concerning Garrick's loyalty. The conversation he has with Bashir at the beginning of the episode implies that he's always in support of like the state, the Cardassian, what's best for the state. But then he also flat out says that he's an outcast spy. So how does that fit together? Yeah, well, I can't remember quite the details of what they say about Garrick's exile status in past prologue and Cardassians, the two prior episodes, where I think it could have, I think it could have been inferred there that he was self-imposed exile. But here, I think like the dialogue we have between Garrick and Turan make it really clear that the government has exiled Garrick, although we still don't know what Garrick did to get exiled. Uh, but I think it's sort of interesting to like go ahead and spoil the end of the episode. We have um, Garrick killing Turan, and on the one hand, obviously Garrick is killing Turan just to settle a personal grudge, because you know clearly he didn't like Turan already, and Turan, you know, is as said he like actively intends to screw Garrick. But on the other hand, like Garrick killing Turan also is something he can sort of justify as being like in the best interest of the Cardassian Union because Turan is this incompetent idiot and Garrick doesn't want him to advance any further. And so it's sort of interesting that we can, you know, you can see Garrick saying at the end of the episode to Quark that he did what he did for love and he doesn't really see any contradiction with him himself professing this absolute loyalty to the state to Bashir, but then him doing something at the end of the episode that obviously the Cardassian state wouldn't be a fan of, but he can still sort of justify as being in the best interest of the Cardassian state. Yeah, I mean, I I, I get that at this point. I mean, as, as I'm the more I learn about Garrick, the more I'm like he's probably one of the best characters on DS Nine. Just how many different layers we can peel back. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. And, like, the, the conversations both between Garrick and Bashir and then between Garrick and Quark in uh, Garrick's tailor shop were just really great this episode. I really appreciated those. In this episode, though, Quark is actually cast as, like, the hero in the end. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I don't know. I, I thought it was fair enough. Apparently, like, some of the writers and some of the fans don't like it because they... You know, they think Quark should always have more of a profit motive or always be a little bit more of an anti-hero, and that's not not as evident here. But, you know, I thought it was fine. I mean, in, 
it sort of continues this theme of season two episodes that are kind of modeled on Casablanca and other 1940s like spy movies and film noirs. We already saw that from Odo's perspective with, I think the episode was Necessary Evil we did a couple of weeks ago. Right. And, you know, we get a reference to it with like Odo is reading a Mickey Spillane novel that Chief O'Brien gave him. So, yeah, it's just sort of continuing that like DS9 using film noir tropes thing. This is the first time we see, I, I may be right, way wrong here, but it's the first time we see Cardassians in like civilian clothes. Or have we seen this before? We might have already seen it in the next generation. Well, and we definitely, I think we saw the politician in the Cardassian episode. I don't think he was in a uniform, although maybe I'm misremembering. Okay. It was. Just, it just stood out to me because they're like, oh, they're not wearing uniforms like everybody else, like they usually do, but I, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, I think you're right, though, that it is a market contrast. Like, uh, Lang and her two students are very unlike any prior Cardassian characters we've met, either on the show or in The Next Generation. Yeah, do we get a clear understanding of uh, what she's actually teaching her students? Because I know that at one point Garrick says it's too radical, but it doesn't really clarify. I mean, are they basically just wanting the, to have democracy on or democratic rule on Cardassia? Yeah, it seems like it. I mean, the I, it's kind of it's kind of interesting because at first you assume she's the ringleader because she's the character we care about, and you know she's described as an authority position over them. But as the episode progresses, it seems like no, actually, it's the two students who are more notorious. Actually, she's probably just more of a mentor and advisor. You know, to the extent where Quark thinks he can like you know, wheedle her way out of being extradited, unlike the students. So, yeah, I mean, it just seems like they're, you know, they're sort of your idealized 90s vision of democratic reformers, you know. Although we do get maybe some suggestion that the two students have participated in more militant or, you know, arguably terroristic acts against the Cardassian Union. Over to uh, Thirst Watch. Yeah, Thirst Watch. In Babylon 5, we've got a drunken Ivanova is the target of a very clumsy pass, and she starts a bar fight in the station casino that does not end well for uh, for the patrons. Uh, she, <laughs> she takes home like three or four dudes at one time. Like, it's pretty awesome. Is that why you're so suspicious of Ivanova, Matt? She's just too good at fighting? Yeah, that's why. She's just she's been trained <laughs> secretly by some awesome karate fight or something. I don't know. I don't know, apparently, I know later on we go to some episode where there's like a fighting pit or something on Babylon 5. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think, thankfully, that's just, I think that's just the single episode. But maybe yeah, she, maybe TKO. She's part, maybe she's part of, of that. Maybe she's part of that. She could. And then, uh, on, of course, on DS9, we've got the Ferengi on Cardassian Love that just, Quark's very thirsty for, uh, for Lang. I mean, he, he, he's never mentioned her before, but he's just smitten over her. Uh, and what's weird yeah, is... Yeah, man, he's been carrying the torch for, what, seven years? Yeah. Is it? That's a long time. But apparently the, the orange and gray makeup on both the actors, like, every time they did the kiss or whatever, it had to be retouched because it all, like, mixed together. So it felt kind of bad for him that they had to constantly get retouches. Mm. <laughs> to move to Deep State Watch, uh, we finally get some clarity on Garrick being an agent of the Cardassian Union. Although, um, like you were saying, Matt, it's not really clear still why he was exiled, and I don't think the show ever makes that really clear. I think that you have to read Stitch in Time to get that story, the novel that Andrew Robinson wrote about Garrick. 
But it is sort of interesting that we're getting a sort of ambiguous portrait of Garrick's political commitments to the Cardassian Union, because in the prior episode, Cardassian, we saw him seemingly side with a politician who looked to be more liberal, Kotan Padar, uh, in a power struggle against Golducott. But here, like you were saying, Matt, he seems to disapprove of Lang and her radical students, and he's perfectly willing to turn them over to the Union until he gets betrayed by Gold Tehran. However, on the flip side, you know, after killing Tehran and then letting Lang and the students go, that doesn't really seem to bother Garrick either. So maybe he's not entirely out of sympathy with their idea to replace military rule with civilian rule in the Cardassian Union. Oh, I think Garrick may just be crazy. He just doesn't care. It's just, <laughs> just, just a big chaotic energy. That's all it is. Whatever he wants to do. Yeah. And then so and we also get a lot of uh, deep state stuff in the Babylon 5 episode. So we, we've already seen that the PSYCOR and an unnamed covert government organization, uh, you know, who I'm just going to call the Knights, are, were running loose in prior um, episodes. But here we start to get a sense that the Internal Affairs Division or the Eyes are colluding with the PSYCOR and specifically the PSYCOP Bester. And it's sort of interesting. So Sinclair's contact on Earth this week is a General Miller who says he can't help Sinclair because President Santiago permitted Bester and Ben Zane's inquisition because he needs political capital to pass his Trade and Immigration Act. And to sort of pivot to Econ Watch here, this is the sort of seems to be the deal that he announced uh, in the episode Survivors. That is that President Santiago announced in Survivors. And, uh, you know, it seems to sort of be like the uh, Babylon 5 version of Bill Clinton's NAFTA. All right. So just my limited understanding is that basically the PSYCOR and the Earth Alliance are in bed with one another. And that's probably going to be a bad thing for the people of Babylon 5. Is that kind of a very limited understanding at this point sort of i mean it's like the psychor are supposed to be subordinate to the earth alliance government is my understanding and you know we were talking about earlier about how like telepathy and telepaths are much more controlled in the universe of babylon 5 and the implication is that the other species like the Minbari and the Centauri also control their telepaths in maybe comparable ways, if not similar ways. So they may not, you know, have it as like uniformed and regimented as the Psychor, but they do have like cultural traditions or religious traditions to like really, you know, limit and control the telepaths and, you know, prevent them from like making the making the state unstable. And so the idea is that Psychor is supposed to be like politically neutral and subordinate to the political authority. But we're getting a sense that they're they're not as subordinate. They're, in fact, pretty independent. And there actually are political players because we found out a few episodes ago that they endorsed Morgan Clark for the VP spot in the last Earth Alliance election. And then, you know, we find out that uh, Bester and Ben Zane, you know, have some political pull and some powerful political support in the Earth Alliance government. So it seems like the PSYCOR isn't really living up to this sort of promise of independence and subordination. Yeah, that's going to be trouble later on. I can see that happening. So Who's your uh, character of the week, uh, Matt? Going to go with Lanier. He finally gets something interesting to do. Boo. Hard disagree. <laughs> I'm not a huge... I, I like the actor, but I'm not a huge fan of Lanier as a character, and I'm especially not a huge fan of Lanier riding a motorcycle. Bill Moomy. <laughs> yeah, no, Bill Moomy's fine. I just, I just don't love the character. Um... 
I, I was tempted to go with Ben Zane, who is a delightful prick, and uh, he's apparently played by the son of the famous Beatles producer George Martin. But uh, I guess I'd go with Garrick. This is a great Garrick episode. I really liked his sort of complex personal and political, uh, sorry, yeah, his personal and political motivations in killing Gul Tehran, and I really liked his conversations with Bashir and Quark this week. So I'll, I'll go with uh, Garrick as my character. Yeah, I can see that. If I had to go with the DS9 character, I'd probably say Quark, but no, but each is on. You All hopeless right. romantic, yeah. you. All right, so episode of the week. go For me, it's Eyes. Uh, you got Sinclair is put in check. Ivanova has Twin Peaks dreams, which we didn't really go into detail, but, I mean, she has a little David Lynch thing going on. Uh, it's a good dream. Yeah. And uh, Garibaldi rides a motorcycle on a space station, so... There you have it. <laughs> Everything you need. I bet it actually does remind me of one other parallel between um, the drumhead and eyes, which is you sort of have Garibaldi and Worf both get deputized by the Inquisitor, but it's sort of interesting that Garibaldi, you know, doesn't doesn't approve of it, is really resentful of it, and is still like you know back channeling information to Sinclair, while Worf just goes all in and. Is, you know, is a faithful disciple of Admiral Seti until she turns against Picard. Well, they had to change something up. <laughs> <laughs> you're so you're so bitter, so bitter. What what other thing about uh, that episode that came to mind too that I forgot to mention earlier is that I'd forgotten how much they were setting up the Klingon Civil War plot for the season four finale in Next Generation, but it was kind of interesting, like the work they did with that Klingons who was spying for the Romulans is like a setup for the big two-parter that ended the season and, you know, had the Klingon civil war with the Romulans intervening. That, that was kind of interesting. You forget that next gen was sometimes capable of doing like season long storytelling. What was your episode? Well, so of the week? For my episode of the week, I'd go profit and loss. Um, eyes was just a little too repetitive of survivors and sky full of stars for me. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, so what do we have on the docket for next week? Oh, man, that's a good question. We've got, what, Blood Oath for um, Deep Space Nine, which is the first kind of Klingon-centric episode. Well, maybe the second, I guess, if you count past prologue. But one of the first uh, Klingon-centric episodes of Deep Space Nine and an episode where Dax really starts to come into her own. And then for Babylon 5, it's the first parter of Voice in the Wilderness, right? That is correct. Part one of Voice in the Wilderness... Yeah, a, a two-parter that's important for the Babylon 5 mythos, yet also not that important and also not that good. So uh, that, that'll be interesting. All right. Well, looking forward to it. Always such a yeah. pleasure. Such a pleasure, Bob. So, so this has been uh, Babylon 5 versus Deep Space Nine, the uh, greatest podcast on 90s space station shows. Uh, this is uh, Bob from uh, Cascadia. I've had Matt from the Southland on the line. Have a good evening, everybody. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. Uh, for show notes, subscribe to our Substack, B5VSDS9.substack.com. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or another podcatcher. Take a screenshot, email that screenshot to us with your question at b 5 vsds9 at gmail.com and we will answer your question on the show uh, we plan to start a patreon with bonus content in the near future so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes email us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com